We're delighted to be with you this morning and bring greetings from the Department of Family Ministries of the General Conference. It's always a privilege and a pleasure for us to speak in our own backyard. Of course, it is sometimes a little daunting. I told um, Dr. Landless this morning that I'm just a little more nervous now, but he assured me that his presence should be more of a comfort to me. So I want you to know, my friend and colleague, that I am comforted, but still a little nervous. <laughs> you know, we're always cognizant when we get up in the pulpit or on any platform that there are people who will look at us and think, oh, I guess they are family ministries directors because they have a perfect family. At least our pictures show that. And you know, Facebook is wonderful because it can really help us like cover all of our flaws. But we wanna assure you that our family is in no way perfect. In fact, our family is like your family. And we encounter many of the challenges and um, little um, challenging interactions that many couples and families face. Just before you share one of them, I'd like to thank Pastor Lerone and Pastor Chad for allowing us to be here. It's delightful to be at Spencerville today. Yes, all right, so where was I? And you said you wanted to thank the choir. Did you thank the choir? I did. You did, and the other participants. I did. Yes, all right, good. All right. You see how that goes, right? Yeah. So, so we were, um, we often tell people that God gave us family ministries to save our own marriage. Now, don't get nervous, anyone. We're okay. You know, we've been doing this now for 35 years. But our daughter, when she was 12 years old, um, heard us having a little disagreement. And I'm sure it was a disagreement about pretty much nothing. But of course, for most of us, these little nothing disagreements are about a lot of things. And I suspect we were probably um, arguing about something like how to fold the towels. Oh, none of you have that problem. Everyone has the towels figured out. Oh, I see someone nodding, right? Because in our marriage, when we got married, I just knew that the towels were gonna be folded in the right way. And that was the way I did them and the way my family did them. And everyone knows the right way to fold a towel is to hold it up, fold it in half, fold it in half again, and then fold it in threes, right? How many of you, see? Look at that, sweetheart. About three people. <laughs> that's, that's the right way to fold towels. But well, actually the right way to fold towels is to be more utilitarian and to be more strategic. You know, you fold it in threes, and then you fold it again, you fold it again. When you're ready to use it, you just hang it on the towel rack and uh, voila, you know, we, we're good to go. See, how many of you agree with that? See, a about, few more, about a few two more, people. A few more, a few more. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, do you know what we do now? So, um, in our early marriage, we had uh, quite a bit of uh, going back and forth as to which way was the way to do the towels. And we both do laundry, which, which is a good thing. So underscore the fact that we both do laundry. So these days when I do and, the laundry. And actually, and actually he does it more than I do. This man loves to do laundry. It's like I have to tell him, are you doing laundry again? Like we have to conserve water. Like why are you washing? But anyway, but this, I like, is, this is a good problem. I like clean towels. So I'm doing the laundry and Elaine and I have different colors towel. You know, we have different colors. That's another story. That's a different story, but it's a good story. 
because here's what happens now. When I'm doing the laundry, I fold Elaine's towels the way she likes them folded, and I fold my own the way I like them folded. And when she does the laundry, she folds my towels the way I like them folded, and her own the way she likes them. So we're good. So on this day that we were having this little tiff, I got into the car to take our daughter to Pathfinders, and as I got into the car, the phone rang, and I picked up, and um, I started laughing. And so our daughter said, um, is that daddy? And I said, yes, how did you know? And she said, well, I can tell by the way you laughed. I thought that was sweet. I'm happy that I was able to pull off a nice laugh. But he did say something funny. And I said to her, I looked at her, and I said, um, when you hear us disagreeing with each other, um, are you afraid that we might get divorced? And she thought about it for a second, and then she said, nah, she said, all the stuff you guys tell people about marriage, you'd be too embarrassed. <laughs> and so here we are, <laughs> 20 years later. So let's begin this way. Marriage is prominent in the creation story. In fact, the first institution established by God at creation. To be sure, Christian, the Christian worldview of marriage is a significant departure of the contemporary perspective. Designed by God, marriage is not rooted in an evolutionary process or socially constructed by humans. It was purposefully orchestrated by God, planned by the Creator for our good. And everything that God has given us for our joy and for our good, Satan tries to destroy. Marriage is not just any relationship. It is the most important relationship which establishes our relationship with God and with one another. While God intended for marriage and family relationships to be satisfying, stable, and fun, sustaining healthy marriages and families is among the most challenging tasks human beings can undertake. Right from the beginning, on our wedding day, we tend to skip the intentionality needed for a stable and satisfying relationship. If I were to ask you how many of you thought as you stood before the minister on your wedding day, how many of you thought how difficult it would be? Now, I know some people are uncomfortable with that notion that marriage is challenging, but it is. It doesn't make it bad, it just makes it the reality. But how many of us really did think about that when we committed on our wedding day to love, to honor, to cherish in sickness and in health for better or for worse? I would dare say that most of us didn't. Most of us, like most premarital couples, think that their marriage is not going to be like those other marriages, right? We are different because we are in love with each other. That's where many of us begin and we forget that it is going to be somewhat of a challenge to sustain happy and satisfying marriages. Despite our best intentions, because we are all human 
and every human being is imperfect, our failings make it very difficult to sustain healthy relationships. The good news, though, is that there is hope for today's families. There's hope for today's marriages. We can change our attitudes. Our children can grow up and be healthy, well-adjusted human beings. We can honor God. We can do great things for humanity. There is hope for today's families as we trust God for healing, love, and power. This morning, our title is Hope for Today's Families. Let's pray. Dear God, feed us. In Jesus' name, amen. Turn with me, turn with us in your Bibles to the book of Luke, chapter 8, verses 40 through 56. The book of Luke, chapter 8, 40 through 56. And the Word of God says, as I read from the English Standard Version, So it was when Jesus returned that the multitude welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And behold, there came a man named Jairus, and he was a ruler of the synagogue, and fell down at Jesus' feet and begged him to come to his house. For he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. But as he went, the multitude thronged him. Now a woman having a flow of blood for 12 years, who had spent all her livelihood on physicians and could not be healed by any, came from behind and touched the border of his garment. And immediately her flow of blood stopped. And Jesus said, who touched me? When all denied it, Peter and those with him said, Master, the multitudes throng and press you, and you say, who touched me? But Jesus said, somebody touch me, for I perceive power going out from me. Now when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him. She declared to him in the presence of all the people the reason she had touched him and how she was healed immediately. And he said to her, daughter, be of good cheer. Your faith has made you well. Go in peace. While he was still speaking, someone came from the ruler of the synagogue's house saying to him, your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher. But Jesus heard it and answered him saying, do not be afraid, only believe, and she will be made well. When he came into the house, he permitted no one to go in except Peter, James, and John, and the father and mother of the girl. Now all wept and mourned for her, but he said, do not weep, she is not dead, but sleeping. And they ridiculed him, knowing that she was dead. But he put them all outside, took her by the hand, and called, saying, Little girl, arise. Then her spirit returned, and she arose immediately. And he commanded that she be given something to eat. And her parents were astonished, but he charged them to tell no one what had happened. When we look at this narrative, we recognize that both the anonymous woman and the prominent rabbi were driven to find Jesus because of their desperate circumstances. And the hope of his reputation had fueled in their hearts 
in a study published in the October 2011 issue of Nature Neuroscience, researchers at the Wellcome Trust Center for Neuroimaging at University College London present evidence that people who are naturally optimistic learn only from information that reinforces that rosy outlook. The study suggests many of us are hardwired for optimism. Some reporters, however, have shorthanded this finding to describe optimism as a brain defect. Brain defect or not, optimism is necessary for personal progress. We have to be able to imagine better realities, possibilities to press forward toward a goal. Hope, however, is more than optimism. And that's what we're speaking about in this narrative, hope. Biblically speaking, hope along with faith and love make up the big three of Christianity. These are the dy dynamics the Apostle Paul speaks about in 1 Corinthians 13 that remain when all else fails. And now faith, hope, and love abide, is how Paul puts it. These three elements are the solid foundation on which we stand as people of faith, even if seen now only darkly as through a distorted glass. Now, Lerone mentioned that we've been married for 35 years. We often say to people we got married when we were five. You could have laughed a little more than that. <laughs> and we have parented two children to adulthood. We, you know, Praise God. <laughs> we're praying for those of you who are still in the process. I mean, of course, parenting never ends, but we, we got over the hurdle. They're both on their own, and they both make their own money, and, and we just pray every day that they keep making their own money. We recognize that without hope, we would not be standing before you today. Marriage and family come with highs and lows, victories and setbacks, and with determination, commitment, compassion, faith, and prayer, marriage can triumph over distress and divorce. In addition, having a successful marriage involves a struggle with self, secularism, and evil forces. We must pull our marriage and family from the onslaught of the enemy. The fight is not with each other. We must unite as a team and fight the enemy together. We must be and recognize that we are on the same team. The reason the Nats won was because they played together as the same team. When you are married, you are on the same team. We can't fight against each other. We have to fight together against the enemy of our souls, the enemy of our relationships. The narrative about Jairus and the anonymous woman lays out a challenge and solution for our families today. We propose three elements from the narrative that have the potential to transform your marriage and family. Number one, each recognize their desperate need and humbled themselves. Jairus, a ruler of the synagogue, a rabbi, 
His friends are plotting for the death of Jesus, but he goes in search of Jesus. He transcends his own inhibitions. He goes beyond his own bias because he's seen the results of the presence of Jesus. He gets outside of himself because the life of his daughter is most important to him. The woman, for 12 long years, she has spent all that she has and yet no relief. But Jesus, something about Jesus, and she goes looking for him. Now, some of you might be looking at us and say, well, but how do you operationalize what you're talking about today? Contemporary marriage research conducted by Dr. Scott Stanley and his research associates at the University of Denver offer that there are factors associated with marital distress and or future divorce that we must be mindful of. They're called static factors and dynamic factors. The static factors are factors that cannot be changed or easily changed, but you must be mindful of them to survive and thrive in marriage. The dynamic factors are factors that can be changed. And yet, most marriages go through distress or experience divorce because of the dynamic factors rather than the static factors. What are the static factors? Someone may ask. Well, glad you asked. I'll share them with you. Static factors, personality factors. Everyone comes to life with a personality. We recognize that very quickly when we had a daughter and three years later we had a son. They were so different. Everybody comes to life with their own personality. But it's not something that can be changed. It just is. If you are familiar with the temperaments, choleric, sanguine, phlegmatic, melancholic, we all have one that's prominent, but you can't change it. And each personality has strengths and growth areas. Personality is a static factor. You can't really change it. Parental divorce is also a static factor. What we know is that children who grow up in families where their parents have divorced are more likely to divorce themselves and are less likely to get married. Number three cohabitation history, which is also a static factor because if you've lived together before marriage, there isn't anything you can do about it. It's in the past. But what we do know, even based on empirical data, is that people who live together before marriage, after getting married, divorce at much higher rates than people who don't live together before they get married. Another static factor is previous divorce. If you've been married and divorced and married again, your chances of getting divorced are much higher than those who've never been divorced. What we do know is that with every succeeding marriage, your chance, your rate of divorce is exponentially higher. But if you're already married and divorced and remarried, there is nothing you can do about that. It's in the past, but you need to be mindful of it. Another static factor is religious dissimilarity. Believe it or not, it's in the empirical data. Here's why, and here's what we know that people who love God the same way and who have the same patterns of church attendance and the same theology tend to have higher levels of marital satisfaction and marital stability. But if you're married to someone from a different faith 
It's a static factor. It's already happened. Now you have to deal with that reality and how to negotiate the differences that are often huge because it's the biggest difference among individuals. And the reason why is that we all make decisions based, based on our values and our values are based on what or how we believe about God. I, I just wanted to interject here because we, we receive letters in our office um, pretty much every week about someone who married someone who is not of the same faith um, at a time when perhaps they were not so involved in church. And then the letter will say something like this, um, you know, we were not really honoring God in our faith tradition, and, and then they will go on to say, and now we are, so is it okay for us to get divorced? Um, so we'll leave that for um, Dr. Eckerhart to deal with. Two more static factors. Young age at marriage. Uh, here's what we know, based on the research, that people who marry before 25 tend to divorce at much higher rates than people who get married after 25. But if you got married before 25, that's a static factor. It's in the past. You can't go back and change it, but you must be mindful of it. And one of the reasons is that the center of judgment is found in the prefrontal cortex of the brain, and it's only fully developed at age 25. So you've married before 25, you're not playing with a full deck. <laughs> but if you did get married before 25, it's already in the past. You can't go back and undo it. So you must trust God to help you navigate that reality. And the last static factor is economic status. Here's what we do know. That while people like to say, oh, when we had no money, we were so happier. We, was, we were much happier. Well, here's what we do know that if you don't know where you're gonna, how you're gonna pay for rent, or how you're gonna buy food, or how you're gonna pay for transportation, you have a lot of stress. So here's what I'd like to say. You need much more than just being in love. The Beatles lied to us when they came screaming back in the early 60s, all you need is love. No, somebody needs a J-O-B. <laughs> so before you go running and hiding and running and getting married because you're so in love, make sure you got enough to buy food and rent or mortgage and transportation. But it's a static factor if you already got married and you don't know where these are coming from. Now these were the static factors. And remember what Willie said is that these factors cannot be changed or they can't easily be changed. But the primary reasons why couples are experiencing distress or divorce today actually have to do with the dynamic factors. And the dynamic factors are things that can be changed. What does that tell you? That most marriages that are experiencing distress or ending in divorce actually could have been reversed. The distress can be reversed. That's the hope that we're talking about. That if we just continue to believe that it can get better and we so. express our needs and we understand where these problems are coming from, we can have better marriages. So what are the dynamic factors? The first one is how we relate to one another, interactive processes. How do we relate to one another? You know, when we first got married, we were so sweet and so kind and loving and tender. And then as the days and the weeks and the months and the years go by, we wake up in the morning, we don't even speak to each other. You know, someone says good morning and you say, what's so good about it? 
that those interactions create tension and stress in the relationship, and it's a dynamic factor. It's something that can be changed. Communication ability is another dynamic factor, and we're going to be speaking about um, communication, communicating with grace this afternoon. So come back if you want to hear more. So how we communicate with one another, learning how to communicate in the way the other person understands. Now, some of you might be a little peeved about our towel situation, saying, well, that's not marriage if you have different color towels and, and you fold them in a different way. No, that is marriage. See, what we know from the research is that there are myriad ways in which we can have a happy marriage. But there are distinct patterns that people have that create distress. Fighting about towels is one of those. Why? Because it's selfishness. There is no one way to fold a towel. There are probably a hundred ways to fold a towel. In fact, some of you may not even like folding towels. So. If your spouse doesn't like to fold, it, fold the towel, you can do several things. Be creative. But how we communicate is a dynamic factor, and we can change how we communicate. Another dynamic factor is conflict management. How do we resolve our problems? Are we solving problems that are solvable? Or are we trying to solve problems that are not solvable? Some of our problems, the towel problem is not a problem. That's not a real problem. Someone getting laid off and now there's not enough money, that's a problem. Someone getting a long-term illness and it creates stress on the entire family, that's a problem. So we need to learn how to resolve those things that are resolvable. Other dynamic factors, physical aggression. And everything that we say today, we want to say, is for those of us that are in relatively healthy relationships, right? So we're not talking about relationships where there is violence and abuse. And physical aggression is a dynamic factor. And I cautiously say that because I know that the greater the level of physical aggression or abuse, the harder it is to change. And it is not something that can be easily changed and definitely will not change on your own. And so we always recommend that if there is violence and abuse in your relationship, that you seek um, professional counsel. Another dynamic factor is dysfunctional attitudes. How do you um, picture your relationship? Do you think of your marriage as a great marriage? Or do you think, oh my goodness, like, you know, I promised to be married for 50 years, 10 down, 40 to go. <laughs> you know, how, how do we look at it? Do we say, look, you know, we have a great marriage, but today, today, I'm not so in love with Willie. What? Here's what I think <laughs> that we should think about do, asking ourselves, do I have a great marriage with some sad times or do I have a sad marriage with some great times? Yeah, yeah, so dysfunctional attitudes. And we can change the way that we think about our marriage. And that's something you could do today. You could say, you know what? My husband has some annoying habits. My wife has some annoying habits, but this is the husband, this is the wife that God gave to me. And it's not all or nothing. And a part of you makes me annoyed, but another part I really like. It's not all or nothing. So build on the positive. Capitalize on that which you have and go for more. In fact, um, when we are 
preparing to present together, we have very different styles. And so, you know, oftentimes I have to remind myself, yes, I do love this man. Um, and he has to remind himself of the same. So, dysfunctional attitude can be flipped. Commitment and motivation. How committed are you? How motivated are you to making your marriage successful and work? So, back to the narrative. J. Iris and the women displayed an enduring faith. This is number two. We said there were three elements. Number two, they displayed an enduring faith. If we are going to sustain our marriage and family relationships, we must have hope and an abiding determination to persevere. We must nurture our commitments to love, honor, and cherish. Here's what we know about commitment. It has two faces, dedication and constraint. We all love the dedication part. We do it because we're just happy and excited about this relationship. But when the relationship gets tough, even with our parenting, we do this. When our kids do what we want them to do, oh, we just love them so much. And unfortunately, sometimes when they misbehave, we withdraw our love. And we, if we're going to have strong and healthy marriages and families, we have to be committed to seeing the positive light at the end of the tunnel. The other side of commitment is constraint. And constraint are those forces that keep us in the relationship even when one or both of us want to exit. What are those forces? We made a commitment before God, our family, our friends, our church, our community. Is that worth anything to us anymore? That we made these vows? That's a constraint and it's okay for us to say we're staying in this marriage because we made a commitment. But that's not our only option. We don't have to stay unhappy. We actually can work back towards dedication. We don't stay at the low. We work hard to get back on and high. In fact, research suggests that individuals who divorce three years later, they're no happier than when they got divorced. And we know what it means for our children. It diminishes their life chances. So. Let's have hope. Let's stay together. And number three, God is never too busy for us. He showed compassion to the rabbi and to the woman. But we have to make time for God to have family worship, to nurture our faith, to know what we believe and why we believe, to have a God-centered relationship rather than a couple-centered relationship. A relationship that loves unconditionally. A relationship that understands that to love means to be patient and to be kind. The reality is we need to make time for each other so that we can grow together. Here's what we often say to people. Your marriage will naturally move toward a state of alienation and separation. You don't have to do anything. If you don't do anything, you will naturally alienate from each other because sin separates and sin is a transgression of the law and sin separates us from God and from each other. So to stay together, we have to be intentional about connecting with each other every day through the power of God. And as Christians, we know that with God, 
all things are possible. With God, we can do it. Three things as we end. Three promises that God has made and three promises that he wants to keep. Number one, that he would be with us always. Matthew 28, 20. And though I'm with you always to the end of the age. Number two, that he will give us his peace. John 14, 27, peace I give to you. My peace I leave with you. Number three, that he will supply all of our needs. Philippians 4, 19, for my God will supply all your needs. So the question we ask today is, what do you need? What do you need for your marriage to go from good to great? What do you need for your parenting to be all God wants it to be? Whatever you need, he's promised to supply. Whatever you need, never forget there is hope for today's families. There is hope for your marriage. There is hope because Jesus is hope. Because Jesus is able to do way more than we can ask, think, or imagine. In fact, when I think about what Jesus is and what he can do, I think that he is supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. That's the kind of Jesus we have. That's the kind of Jesus we serve. And whatever you need this morning, like Jairus, like the woman with the issue of blood, he is here to heal. He is here to transform. He is here to save. We're about to pray, but even as we pray now, Someone wants a stronger, healthier marriage. Someone wants to be a better parent. Someone wants to be a better son, a better daughter. If that's you, would you raise your hand? We want to pray for you in a special way. Just better. Better. Because we belong to Jesus. And he belongs to us. We're praying now. Dear God, we are just so awed by your goodness towards us. Lord, we still believe that you are working miracles in our lives each and every day. And Lord, today we ask for a miracle for whoever is in need of that miracle. We believe, Lord, that you have the power to heal, to forgive, to save. And even now, Lord... As people are identifying their need, please supply as you've promised. And we'll be careful to give you the honor and the glory. In the name of Jesus, amen. Amen. God bless you.